What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back for another Midnight Myth. It feels like forever since we did episode 200, The Godfather. That's because it was forever ago. Yeah, truly. A lot has happened since uh, since we completed that episode. Absolutely. The whole world is different in many ways, and that's just kind of the pace of change these days. Thank you to everyone who listened, tweeted, participated in our 200th episode, our Q&A. The download numbers were through the chart for our humble little podcast, and we were very excited for that. And continuing this theme of American classic cinema, Movies that are considered by some to be the greatest movies of all time. Certainly movies that are going to be in the top rankings. And these classic works have been a lot of fun for us to revisit. Part of the reason it took us a while on this one was because our lives are very busy. But also we really wanted to make sure we knew what we wanted to say and how we wanted to add to the conversation to a movie that has been analyzed, dissected, Papers have been written on it. People have gotten PhDs in film schools on this one. It is genuinely, genuine, generally, generally considered, and genuinely considered, I should say, the greatest piece of American cinema of all time. We are talking about Charles Foster Kane, the character invented by Orson Welles. We are talking about Citizen Kane. Yeah, I am very, very excited to talk about this one. As someone who came through film school and spent a lot of time in those critical studies courses writing those papers, this is one that comes back time and again. And I'm really excited to talk about it because we rewatched it recently for the podcast. And it really just, you know, we're going to get to our question about whether or not it holds up, but it's just genuinely fun to watch Citizen Kane. And it's a great story. And I think there is so much of Citizen Kane that is deeply, deeply relevant to the times that we're living in today. And a lot of that we'll get into deeper through our conversation today. I think Citizen Kane speaks to a part of us that is timeless. And that's really exciting as a, as a Midnight Myth podcaster. It is just truly one of the most famous movies of all movies. It is is known for so many things that we will be getting into tonight. This is one where we do want to discuss a little bit of how the sausage was made, because it's important to recognize 
what Citizen Kane did in film history and how it changed the way people thought movies could be made and how many great works of cinema that come after it owe a debt to what Orson Welles did in this movie. So it's worth investigating what he did and how and why. And in many ways, we always talk about the mythological component. It is in the name. It is of the podcast. It is something that Laurel and I are very passionate about, is understanding ancient myth and how ancient myth echoes into our modern era. But in this one, I honestly, while that those connections are there, we could draw them. I genuinely believe this is a modern myth, one that should be interrogated as its own, as its own story, as a truly contemporary piece of myth. And I think from that lesson, we can understand all of Hollywood as the business of mythology, as the business of myth. Anyway, I'm putting the cart way before the horse here. Deeply, yes, but that is what you do when you talk about Citizen Kane. It it is just truly phenomenal. But before we roll up our sleeves and get too deep into this, before we peer under the hood and really dissect all of the amazing things in this phenomenal movie, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, my thing is that we would love to hear from you. We are on social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we're on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. And we're always ready to hear from you to, you know, drop us a line, give us some feedback, let us know what you'd like to hear on the podcast. And we're, we're happy to interface with you there. Also on our website, MidnightMyth.com, you'll find a link to our Patreon and our merch store if you'd like to support us monetarily. But the very best thing you can do for the podcast costs you no money at all. You just leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen. We have two other side projects here at the Midnight Myth because between a baby and a business and a full-time job on my part, we did not have enough going on. So we both have our own little side podcast projects. I am thrilled to say that I am deep into the first season of my new podcast, Sleep and Sorcery, which is bedtime stories for grown-ups inspired by folklore and fantasy. And you can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts or on the meditation app Insight Timer. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who has listened so far, and I hope it has helped you fall asleep. So check it out if you are like me and you love Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and Greek mythology, but you also have a terrible time getting to sleep at night. Derek also has a side podcast called The Wheel of Ka, which he does with our buddy Steve. And here's the thing. It's been a little while since they podcasted because, I don't know, people had babies, people started businesses, a lot was happening in the world. But we are rereading, not rereading. We are picking back up with the stand. Steve and I both have carved out time. We are reading. We don't have an episode record date yet because we want to get to a point where we feel like it's time to pause and record. Maybe we'll read the rest of it. If you were listening to the Wheel of Ka, we stopped at around page 230 of the stand in the last episode. So if you want to pick back up and read along, start there keep going. We will have an episode of Wheel of Ka when we get to the point where we're like, it's time to pause and talk about the stand. And we may decide to read the rest of the stand. We'll see what happens. Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure you guys who are faithful listeners of the Midnight Myth and also lovers of the Wheel of Ka know that those wheels are still turning. And I personally am really excited for the next Wheel of Ka because I read the stand in the interim and Holy moly, what a book. So I'm really excited to hear your analysis and thoughts on the rest of it. 
Wonderful. So shall we do the briefest of brief recaps? Let's do it. Take it away, Derek. Citizens Kane starts with a newsreel describing the life of a media mogul named Charles Foster Kane, who had died and recently passed away. At the end of that newsreel, we get a bunch of reporters trying to figure out how could they actually write about this giant of media industry and about his life. And they decide to investigate his final word, which was Rosebud. A reporter then goes on a, mer- a mission to try to learn who Charles Foster's cane was through the lens of why would his last word be Rosebud. From there, we see the life of Charles Foster's cane through the eyes of others, starting with his guardian, the banker who raised him, talking about Charles Foster's cane in his own memoirs. Then we go to his best friend and even his ex-wife. At the very end of the movie, we learn so much about Charles Foster Kane. He grew up rich when his mom discovered something in their land that was incredibly valuable. They don't really explain what it is. Maybe it's oil, maybe it's gold. And she decides to have a banker raise him instead of staying in their Colorado home with their abusive and potentially even criminally abusive, neglectful father. And he is raised by a banker and as a young man decides to start a newspaper. And from there, he builds a newspaper empire. He dips his toes into politics, but his affair with his second, who would become his second wife, that scandal ends up leaving him out of politics. We know that his first wife and child, his only son, die in a car accident. And Charles Foster Kane builds a palace called Xanadu, a gigantic museum for him and his second wife to live. She, being much younger, is not happy and leaves, and Charles Foster Kane dies alone, sad and broken, and whispers Rosebud. At the very end of the movie, the main character who has investigated him, the journalist, decides that no word can ever sum up a man, and Rosebud's probably not anything we'll ever understand, only for the camera to pan Rosebud is the name of the sled that the banker gave him before he left his home in Colorado and not seeming to be of any value is thrown in the incinerator and burns. Oh my gosh. What a story. It's so deceptively simple too. It's this exploration of a really complicated man and it's this, it's looked upon as this jewel of cinema and yet it is a deeply simple story about a fall about a rise to power and a tragic fall. He's often referred to as a man who lost everything he ever had, Charles Foster Kane. And it's just this story of a man accumulating wealth and then losing everything and dying and not knowing the answers. It's really beautiful. It's poetic. It's tragic. And it's simple. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to ask this because this is what we do here at the midnight myth. I know what you're going to say, but tell me Laurel, we just rewatched Citizen Kane. Does it hold up? Nah. No, I'm kidding. Yes, it absolutely does. One of the things that struck you and me about rewatching it is so, as you know, if you listen to the podcast, we have a almost 16 month old son. We can only really get things done for ourselves while he's napping or asleep. So we decided to start it during one of his naps and we ended up being able to finish the whole thing because it's under two hours. And it's like, you expect a movie like this that is this renowned to be four hours like Gone with the Wind, but it's not. It's a very tight, very, um, like I said, very simple film. It's not a lot of plot. It's just a really efficient exploration of a character. 
and a character who leaves a deep impression on everyone he's ever encountered. I think the innovations in the medium of cinema cannot at all be discounted or underestimated. The development of deep focus, for example, is often a, a, a focus of exploration within this film of how he achieved, how Orson Welles achieved the deep focus and what it was able to do in terms of the story. Every frame of this is a living painting. And one thing I think is kind of interesting about that deep focus in particular is that today when you talk about like shooting cinematic videos on your iPhone, you try to accomplish a sense of shallow focus and have a really shallow depth of field where something is in focus and the background is blurred. And that's what we refer to as cinematic these days. But if you look at the greatest example of cinema of all time, as most people will put it, it's this exquisite deep focus where you've got multiple characters on multiple planes of foreground and background who all have the same level of emphasis within the frame. And yet you're, it's so exquisitely choreographed that your eye is able to process it as a linear story. So every frame is a story told through position and through lighting. So as a work of just aesthetic cinema, it is outstanding. And then, you know, I've already said it, I think the story itself is down to its very core, so very simple, so very tragic. You spend a lot of time kind of wondering if you're supposed to be on Kane's side or if he's this great monster. And at the end, you can't help but feel for him, even though he has done some truly terrible things. You are able to block out the, uh, the, the horrors of his life and just feel pity for him and also feel like there was goodness and greatness in him the entire time. It's a really staggering achievement. I mean, freaking Orson Welles was 24 when he made this movie and he changed cinema forever. So I'm just sounding like a fangirl and like someone who went to film school at this moment, but I just really think uh, it's, it's everything people say it is and deeply relevant to our time. So it's even more. I uh, totally love that. And I think there's nothing wrong with you coming onto the midnight myth and fangirling over Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. That right, is totally yeah. okay. This is your podcast. And, you can do that if you want. And do you mind if I fangirl a little bit more about Orson Welles here? No, please do. I will give you the mic here in a moment. All the space in the world, Laurel. But he is just someone I really admire for his innovations to form. And part of that is because he comes from theater and I also come from theater and I have always been very interested in experimental ways of bringing the audience into the experience of performance or storytelling. And Orson Welles' great and controversial achievement before Citizen Kane was his radio recording of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. And that was, I mean, I think there's a lot of urban myth that's wrapped up into it, but he decided to adapt this novel about an alien invasion into a radio play that was news broadcasts. And the urban legend goes that people were listening to this and thought it was real news broadcast and thought that the world was being invaded by aliens and it caused mass hysteria. And who knows how much truth there is to that, but I just really admire him as someone who is like, let's break the form a little bit. Let's do something that's not possible or let's do something that is really unorthodox, even if it causes some really severe reactions. 
Yeah, I think it's worth pausing a little bit on that point and talking about some of the things Orson Welles himself has said about Citizen Kane. Sure. There's a lot of really good interviews Orson Welles did later in his life that are all on YouTube. Highly recommend you see them and let Orson explain this in his own sort of voice because it was incredibly powerful hearing this man talk about the making of this movie and what it meant. Which he claims to have never seen, by the way. He claims that he never saw Citizen Kane. Yes, he walked out in the middle of its premiere, but he also says he's seen it hundreds of times in the editing room. Right, of course. But he has not ever since it's the final edit was done, gone back and watched the movie. Yeah, and I I don't have any reason to doubt him. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, that might be a bit, but I just thought it was interesting. I'm going to, someone who had dipped his toe into musicianship and making music, I despise listening to myself. Sure. I hate it. I only do it when I hang out with old bandmates who want to play it. And I'm just like, I can't stand it because if you have this drive, this artistic drive towards perfection, and as a drummer, drummers need to be perfect. In order for a drum in a rock song to work, it must be done perfectly without any technical errors, whether it's artistically perfect is a matter of interpretation, but at least technically, rhythmically perfect. And I listen to myself and I hear myself in my imperfections and I go crazy. I go absolutely insane over it. I would imagine a director and filmmaker like Orson Welles would probably feel similar and not want to watch it because he would probably see everything that he would have done differently. One of the questions asked in one of these interviews was, hey, if you were to do it again, make this movie again, would you do it differently? He's like, of course I'd make it differently. Of course I would change things. Of course I would. I was 25. I didn't know what I was doing, which brings the point. One of the questions that he's asked several times in these few interviews that we have seen was, how did you come up with these innovations? Things that he had done. You mentioned the deep focusing, the way the lighting works, the camera, the way the camera moves and acts like a, a its own character. And he said the reason he was able to come up with these innovations was because he was ignorant. He calls himself ignorant of what you could or could not do. And the story goes like this. He does the the radio show. He gets this bonkers Hollywood contract, which doesn't exist to give him full creative freedom to make a movie, which is at this time in Hollywood was the studio system where the studio, the producer controlled almost every aspect of the film The director had very little creative freedom and just had to give the film that the studio wanted and desired. Somehow he gets a budget, having never directed a movie before, and he gets full creative freedom. He ends up working with a cameraman who was one of the best cinematographers in Hollywood at the time, and the cameraman just let him go. Orson Welles talks about the lighting. One of the things in this movie that is so amazing is the light in how faces are sometimes darkened and obscured, the way that light ends up symbolically telling the story. Sometimes faces are half light and half dark. And Orson Welles talks about, as a theater professional, a director in theater, one of their jobs is lighting. At the time, a director in film, their job was not to do the lighting. Orson Welles didn't know directors weren't expected to do the lighting. So here he is in there moving the lights and everyone's looking at him and the cameraman's just like, don't just seize what's happening and just says, just let him do his thing. 
And one of the reasons we have such amazing lighting in a black and white movie, mind you, a movie that doesn't have color. One of the reasons you have such amazing lighting is Orson Welles didn't know directors weren't supposed to do that. Now, it is common for directors to comment on and work with the lighting, change the game. And this innovation, he said, was just ignorance. He also says, from the technical craft of the movie, the technical craft of a camera, he says, you can learn everything you need to know about a movie camera in half a day. And it is something that movie professionals don't want out there because they want to make this a lore that what they do is so amazing and so special. So him not knowing anything about cameras, learning from a great cameraman in a day and a half, had no conception on what could and couldn't be done. So he's just like, we're going to do things. We're just going to do them. We're not going to sit and think about whether we can or cannot do them, whether it's possible to do them. We're just going to go and we're just going to do it. And that really inspired me. And it reminds me of another filmmaker who would come a few decades later who was told certain things would be impossible in film and decided, no, I'm just going to go ahead and do them. And that was George Lucas. George Lucas. It was like, yeah, I think a computer can actually generate images on the screen. Let me, let me uh, learn some computer code and see if we can create computer-generated images. And suddenly you have Star Wars. And what I find so amazing about the myth of making this movie is how there is a certain element of youthful passion that comes dripping off the screen, coupled that with Orson Welles' meditations looking backwards, that says that there is this point in your life where you know just enough to be bold, but not enough to be conservative. And you just go for it. And Orson Welles was at that moment and convinced the studio to give him a blank check and a bunch of great camera people and we are able to, from that, get what is considered to be the greatest movie of all time, at least in American cinema. And it tops every list out there as the greatest work of American cinema. And some way even say the greatest work of cinema ever. And here you have the writer-director being like, yeah, I've never seen it. I would do it differently, knowing what I know now. And the reason I did the quote-unquote impossible was because I was dumb. I was young and dumb. I didn't know that you couldn't do those things. So I just did them. I love it. And I just want to name drop the cinematographer, Greg Toland, who was the architect of so many of these innovations that Orson Welles was young and dumb enough to be inspired to do. There's a lot of cane in that too, right? Even though in these same interviews, Orson Welles will refute the fact that it might be autobiographical. Citizen Kane might have a little bit of Orson Welles in him, but there is a lot of cane in the idea of youthful, brash, uh, being unaware of what's possible or what the status quo is, he comes into money and one of my favorite moments as they're looking over his expenses and his spending, they are admonishing him for never using his money to invest. And he says, no, I always used my money to buy things. And that, again, so simple. It's like, nah, I didn't put my money into things that I thought would make me money. I used it to buy things that I thought would make me happy. And while this movie is constantly meditating on whether goods or services or investments or wealth or 
material materiality can make you happy. That is a really interesting window into Kane himself saying, no, I was much more interested in just buying things. And Orson Welles is like, no, I'm just more interested in kind of doing, doing stuff rather than innovating the form. Absolutely. And I think that gets to the heart of understanding this character, at least as it's told and understanding the myth that this movie is deconstructing and I do believe that we could understand this movie best as a introduction, the precursor to what would become postmodernist film and its ability to deconstruct previously conceived notions that came before it, which was the work of postmodernity, which was to look at modernity and poke holes in it and say, yeah, you know what? It wasn't that great. It got a lot of things wrong. And I want to draw some textual evidence and be a little specific in this, if you'll mind me. This, I guess we're turning to the analysis Yeah, piece. for sure. In America, America has always been the land of opportunity. We tell ourselves a story about ourselves. We tell ourselves a myth that in America, hard work, ingenuity, and grit means that you can get ahead in this world and you may even be able to make it big. So many pieces of American media and myth are about this. We tell ourselves this in stories and narratives, everything from Star Wars, in which Luke Skywalker's grit and determination blow up the Death Star, to other movies like Shawshank Redemption, where even in the most horrible of circumstances, your grit and determination and your individual willpower can end up manifesting great outcomes so many of our stories reinforce this myth. Even the way we've all commonly discussed the American Revolution as a group of people that wouldn't bow down to a foreign hostile power. Dumped a bunch of tea in the harbor. And decided to make matters, and then they built a country out of their own whole cloth from nothing. And all of these myths permeate into our consciousness, and all of these myths come from the first the Western European Enlightenment and then the Industrial Revolution and modernity. That is when America really rose to its prominence in its early years. And that is when this myth was so powerful, and I would argue is powerful to today. And then in comes Orson Welles with Charles Foster Kane. How does Charles Kane get his wealth? Not through hard work or grit or determination. It's dumb, blind luck. They, they're poor, backwater Colorado family bought a plot of land that somehow made them super rich. There was no virtue in the acquisition of this wealth. It wasn't the American work ethic. It wasn't the Protestant work ethic. It wasn't being so ingenuitive and different and coming up with a crazy business idea and having the guts to go for it. Nope, they just bought a piece of land that turned out it was worth a ton of money. That's the first piece of evidence deconstructing the American myth. And I think that one's the most literal. On a grander scale, when we see the newsreel with Charles Foster Kane, we see him hobnobbing with Hitler, and it's a really quick, jarring image. You could forget that it's in the film by the end of it. Reminding us that a lot of Americans were completely down with the, the fascist and Nazi movements. Charles Foster Kane being one, a thing we like to tell ourselves, us Americans, part of the American mythic consciousness, is that we are democratic to our core, that we want to self-govern to our core. And yet here is an American mogul who described himself as an American, nothing more, nothing less. 
He is now and always will be an American hanging out with Adolf Hitler and then coming back from it saying, yeah, I don't think there's going to be a war, getting that completely and totally wrong, then poking a hole in American myth. And then the other hole, and I think the biggest glaring one, is the idea that if you were only rich and famous, all of your problems would go away. That wealth and money and status and power, that these things that we define uniquely American and that Americans are uniquely able to access. The average wealthy American can get to wealth and power and status. Only in America can that happen. The idea that that can bring you happiness, the ultimate conclusion is they call Charles Kane the man who lost everything. But he still has his money. He still has his status. He still has his wealth and power and his palace but they say he has absolutely nothing. He just has a memory of his childhood, a time before wealth, power, and status when, man, I was actually happier then than I am now. And again, poking a hole into the American myth consciousness, the idea that American myth that we can self-govern and from that self-governing, we can be prosperous in free market liberal economics and any one of us could end up a Charles Foster Kane if we work hard enough, if we have enough grit, and if we are ingenuitive enough. Ingenuitive, is that not a word? Ingenious. Ingenious, and if yeah, we are ingenious but, enough. Yeah. And this is a guy who did nothing to get his wealth. He uses it for his status and own power, and it leaves him hollow, corrupted, his empire in tatters and destroyed. In many ways, it's really a sister film to The Godfather, This or The Godfather is a sister film to Citizen Kane. It's kind of wonderful that we're moving right from The Godfather, also considered one of the greatest films ever made, to Citizen Kane, because both are really interested in interrogating that American bootstraps dream, and both are about the ascendance and then the fall of a man who oh, it could be so great and maybe is to their core, but we just don't know. Like we're just kept like K behind the closed door of their innermost feelings and their innermost motivations. It's so interesting to look at these two as companions. I really love what you're saying about how this film deconstructs the American dream. And another thing that I think is really interesting about watching this film today is how, when you really look at it, while it feels in many cases like the flashbacks that we're getting are these objective presentations of what happened in the past, you have to look closer and remember that all of these are stories being fed to a faceless protagonist or a faceless journalist who we do not know anything about by people who were in Charles Foster Kane's life and that Kane is voiceless throughout this story. He is looming over every frame. He is larger than life, and he is the subject of every single second of this film. And yet, the only objective moment where he is able to speak his truth to us, the audience, is when he utters Rosebud. That's the only moment that we are actually with him and not with him through the story or the narrative of someone else, which I do think is a really interesting meditation on history because this is a character who had his fingers in so many pots 
as far as how America was governed and how America communicated and who is based, of course, uh, partially on William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper magnate from the 1890s, who I think we will talk a little bit about. But the fact that this person is a historical figure will loom large over the history of what comes after this movie. And yet all we know about him truly is what others can say. And all of those others have an agenda or have a chip on their shoulder or have a reason to be mournful of his passing and yet disgusted with this character. And at the very end of the movie, we do get our journalist commenting on how he's been chasing this rosebud the entire time and how it's been impossible to find the meaning of rosebud through these people who were part of Kane's life. Sorry, I just hit the microphone there. And he says, I don't think any word can explain a man's life, which is really a key to this movie, right? We're talking about puzzle pieces. We're talking about history like it's a puzzle, just like Susan Kane in the cavernous halls of Xanadu is trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together to keep herself from going mad with boredom. We are always, when looking back at history and particularly biography, we're always going to be missing pieces of the puzzle because so much of understanding a person is part of their interiority and their inner life. And we as spectators cannot know that. We cannot understand the, the truth of what's going on inside a person. So at the end of it, can Rosebud actually explain Charles Foster Kane's life? Can we really know and can we really unlock the secrets of Charles Foster Kane by interpolating that he missed his childhood when he was innocent and poor and with a mother who loved him? Is that enough? I think the ultimate point in trying to understand that character, Kane, was that he was unhappy. And that is, and his unhappiness on the things that we have been told in a very mythic way, in the way that myths are propagated, we are told if we had these things, we'd be happy. And the fact that we can say unequivocally, Charles Foster Kane was unhappy, that I think is enough to rate this as a postmodernist interpretation of the American dream. Yeah. Even though postmodernism is just starting, it doesn't really exist in the 1940s when this came out, 1941. Yeah, it's very post-war, but we're right on the cusp. And postmodernism takes huge gains in the 60s, but the groundwork for postmodernism is happening, and this is the groundwork for postmodernist interpretations of film and postmodernist interpretations of the American dream arguing de facto that the American dream is a myth, one in which that will not make you happy. One in which is actually not even very beneficial. Kane says, if I hadn't been very rich, I might have been a really great man. He actually says that wealth is antithetical to happiness, to greatness, to goodness, which I think is also something to reflect on today when we live, uh, we live in a society Drink. <laughs> um, when we live in a society with billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk who can steer the narrative, who can try to buy Twitter and who can take joy rides to space. Not try, will. Who, yeah. Will buy Twitter. Who will buy Twitter and who can control free speech and who can control the, the narrative of 
what we understand, what is communicated to us as the people. It's a really interesting thing to reflect on. And America has had magnates, men, typically men, white, straight men, almost always, who have risen through the world of some type of industry to great prestige and power and wealth. And they are all over our history. And often they're the most revered men of their generation. This entire narrative, this movie is all about people being so interested in who Charles Foster Kane was that they send a journalist to learn about his last word. That would only exist in a world when people might actually care about that. Implicit in the narrative is that people want to know more about this man, whether they loved him or hated him. And this is also very true of figures such as Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. And another one worth mentioning would be Donald Trump. And that these incredibly wealthy, media-savvy individuals who are in the public eye, who we can't help but look at, whether that's in admiration or disgust, and that they have a huge central role in shaping and forming American thought and the American beliefs and American myth. What is Make America Great Again, if not a myth? And this is not to uh, say myth in a, in a way, myth can have a term, it can mean, it can feel so um, derogatory. You're calling something a myth because you're saying it's untrue yeah, and you're like debunking myth busters, it. Yeah, like Mythbusters, yeah. But the real root of a myth is a story that people tell themselves about themselves. Is What makes myth interesting to me is not where they are untrue, but where they are true. Yeah. And what they can say about us by understanding them. And surely there is also a mythology around Elon Musk when someone can make a tweet that can change the way global markets will trade stocks or currencies like Bitcoin and other crypto, that there's a mythology around Elon Musk that is so powerful that he can just, with 180 characters, change the value of money itself. Surely myth still exists in our common um, consciousness today, in our collective consciousness, I should say, today. And these figures loom so large, and what this movie is telling you is, you know, don't be like them. It's actually a lot better to just live a simple, normal, happy life. Everybody that gets interviewed that talks about Charles Foster Kane to an extent is made worse by their relationship to Charles Foster Kane. And if there isn't a more damning um, version or story or narrative about a self, it is the person who made those around them worse. That is a terrible thing to be. I just wanted to share a quote from one of those interviews that you mentioned with Orson Welles much later talking about Citizen Kane. And he, he calls Kane, quote, always close to farce, parody, and burlesque. He's a clown. He is not a, a fully realized person, but someone who is just on the edge of being a parody of themselves, which you just mentioned Donald Trump as an analog of Kane, which I do not think we should gloss over. I think is absolutely something that watching the film today is impossible to not see as a person who inserts themselves into every single aspect of existence who blows up a portrait of themselves behind their campaign speech and 
spouts these kind of populist ideals of I am part of the uh, the working society, I am standing up for the lowly laborer, I'm standing up for the common man, while I, you know, marry a president's niece who's wearing a million dollar fur right now and will get picked up in our limo. It's a really cogent and really striking and prescient uh, parallel. And it's really hard to watch Citizen Kane without thinking of Trump these days. Yeah, a few things to flesh out there, especially when we see Kane running for governor. First, he runs on an anti-elite populist ticket, saying that the elites in government are inherently corrupt. And because of that, the working person, the working man is the term he uses in the uh, in the movie, is unable to get ahead. So it's about aligning yourself, the rich, born rich, super wealthy media mogul saying, I'm going to align myself with the common working man. Another thing too, Kane is funny. He gets everybody in the room to laugh. One thing's that a lot of people who oppose Donald Trump struggle to understand, he's funny. He's an actually entertaining person. There's a reason he's been in media for as long as he's been. And it isn't because he's boring. It's because he's entertaining. I thought that that was an interesting parallel that a lot of us don't, aren't a lot of us anti-Trumpers aren't really willing to give him credit. The dude cracks the room up. Uh, he also promises Kane when he gets in power, what's he going to do? He's going to jail his opponents. As soon as he becomes governor, the previous governor, he's going to appoint a special commission with the purpose of arresting the current governor. Sound like lock her up? Absolutely does. He's also willing to use the media if he loses to claim that the election was fraudulent, that it was quote unquote rigged. All of these things line up very neatly with what we see, at least on a macro level of the Donald Trump phenomenon. And I'd also throw Elon Musk in there too, though Elon Musk has yet to dip his toe into politics, but it's only a matter of time. Oh, yeah, it's coming. Yeah, it is only a matter of time before Elon Musk says, you should vote for me too, because look at how great I am at everything. And this idea that I am great at business, I am great at, at media, and that means I am going to be great at politics, give me all the wealth and power. And what this movie is saying is none of that would ever make Kane happy, and none of it is probably making Trump or Musk happy. They're both probably, if the thesis by Orson Welles is correct, they're probably the two most miserable people on the planet. Another quote from Wells, we have Cain as a man of real gifts and charm who destroys himself and everything around him. He really says that he was trying to critique acquisitive culture, a critique of acquisition. And Cain is a person who just accumulates things and accumulates things of purported value that if you actually look at them stored away in Xanadu, you're like, really, this is valuable? A statue with no arms and legs? He's just constantly pulling up and grabbing and storing and hiding these things that do not bring him any kind of satisfaction, but he's trying to fill that void. Consumption will not heal your soul. Only doing the work, serious work at to why you're unhappy and what you need to do in your life to become happy. And Charles Foster's Kane, because 
he was given a fortune that he didn't deserve, that he did nothing to attain, nothing to attain it, is constantly looking to fill the void in his heart with consumption, which will never heal your heart. And another quote I'd like to bring out that I think is very much about, at least eerily present of the modern American sort of political consciousness, quote, never met a man with so many opinions who didn't believe in anything except for Charlie Kane, end quote. And there is a, I'd like to unpack that a little bit. That is a very narcissistic quote. It's about Charlie Kane only believed in himself and nothing else. But the fact that he had so many opinions, he had an opinion about everything, but there were no core beliefs, that feels really like scrolling through Twitter or Facebook these days, where everybody has an opinion about something, but nobody actually believes in anything. I think one of the challenges as you go through life in post-modernity, as we go through life in this messy soup that is now, is to reflect and say, what are my actual beliefs? And try to form the way you think you should live in the world and that is actually a really good thing. I did that for the company that I started. I want to know what do I believe in as a person first. And then from there, what will my company believe in as an extension of me? But it starts with having some beliefs. How do you get to a world where someone who runs a newspaper can start a war because they think that might be good for selling newspapers? Yeah, that's somebody that lacks belief. I'm glad you brought that up because I really do want to talk about how this film portrays media and personality behind media because that's another space where I feel like watching this film today is eerie and kind of scary again because we see the seeds of so many of today's issues with a different form of media than newspapers, but we see it beginning there. And there are historical roots to this. I mentioned earlier that Kane is loosely based on William Randolph Hearst, who is a notable name in what was called yellow journalism. This is a phenomenon of the 1890s, which is part of the Gilded Age in American history. This was a time that was marked by massive income inequality and a lot of sort of, they call it gilded because it seemed like it was a wealthy, opulent time, but it was also a time that everybody was kind of falling apart and the poor were getting poorer and the rich were getting richer. But Yellow journalism is a name that was created out of a war started between two wealthy newspaper magnates, William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer of Pulitzer Prize fame, which is always so ironic. And I love that like the greatest prize you can get for literature and journalism is named after basically the inventor of the sensational tabloid. But anyway, these two newspaper magnates were going head to head trying to outbid each other for newspaper sales. And when there was an attack on the USS Maine in Havana Harbor in Cuba, both of these journalists papered the fronts of their newspapers with war and there's an attack in Cuba and it was done by the Spanish. We have incontrovertible proof that Spain has attacked the USS Maine in Cuba and there is no choice left but for the US to go to war. And these headlines, these sensational headlines, were instrumental in swaying public opinion toward the U.S. going to war with Spain. And that happened. This is the media creating a narrative that they thought would drum up sales 
that actually sent people to war and people died over it. And today, that feels simultaneously insane and impossible and also like, oh yeah, that's happening all the time. Fox News and CNN and MSNBC are spinning these narratives that are sending public opinion one way or another and deciding how we feel about a war effort. Absolutely. And then I think that goes to the heart of what it means to be in media, which is not a reflection of an opinion, but rather a creator of opinion, rather not a, a representation of what just conveying generally accepted knowledge, but rather as knowledge creating, not knowledge reflecting. And I think that is a epistemological problem that's very old and that we are still completely on the like lost on trying to fix and lost on trying to solve. So a few things I'd like to extrapolate since we are you know, dabbling in history. Published daily news is a tradition that dates back to the Roman Empire. Not surprising. If you've seen the HBO series Rome, they have this like overweight man who goes in, in the middle of the forum and just screams the news. It's my favorite character. He's a very good character. So that is called the Actia Dernai, which are in Latin means the daily acts. They're ancient Rome, and that's a announcement, whether it was political or social, and that they would have people read these to the commoners, and they would go around and scream them in places like the Rome Forum, places that were like the center or the hearts of the town. They were highly propagandized. Whoever was in control of them could control the narrative, and that narrative was designed to control public opinion. In the Middle Ages, there were people that would go around writing manuscripts of events, and that these manuscripts would then also be read in public squares, and where there was, where there was literacy, they'd be spread among other people as well. And these were also highly propagandized. A bishop claims to have done a miracle. Well, the manuscriper wrote down the miracle and said, this is the miracle that happened. And this then spreads and everyone thinks this one bishop can do miracles. Or this one king, God came to him and said, you're going to win this battle. And they won the battle. And the battle having been won is proof that God is real. A lot of these were heavily propagandized, heavily used to control narrative and public opinion and spread the will of the rich and the powerful. In 1440, a goldsmith named Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press, and this changed our relationship to words, the written word in particular, and changed our relationship to knowledge, because now it became very easy and very affordable for books to be available in mass, and that meant that more people could start to read. And with more people reading, people got smarter but there also became battles over who would and would not read. So rudimentary newspapers started appearing in Europe in the 17th century, so the 1600s, and they also started at this time popping up in Japan as well. In Germany, there was a thing called the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 48, and that really set back the cause of a free press because there started being major censorship and they started controlling what was being printed to uh, make it into war propaganda. Sweden, I did not know this, passed the first law guaranteeing the freedom of the press in the 1760s. Wow, go Sweden. Yeah, go Sweden. The first newspaper in the United States was called The Public Occurrences, Both Foreign and Domestic, in Boston. 
And it had one issue, and the colonial governor suppressed it immediately. Wow. In 1704, the Boston newsletter began a publication and started issuing it weekly. And then in 1719, the Boston Gazette was open, who was printed by a guy named James Franklin. You may have heard his of his brother, Benjamin Franklin. I have heard of him, yes. And both became publishers. And then 1721, James Franklin began the New England Courant. Now, freedom of the press started becoming a legal idea in the colonies in 1735. And that was when there was a law, law case where someone was suing a newspaper and the judge sided with the newspaper, sort of opening the precedent that newspapers can kind of publish what they want. And then the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in 1791 guaranteed freedom of the press. What sprung out of that was a partisan newspaper battle between the Federalist and the Jeffersonian Republicans. These were people using, people in power like Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. If you've seen the Hamilton musical, you know there's a line where Hamilton says, hey, I'll use the press and I'll write under a pseudonym. You'll see what I can do to him. Yeah, we smack each other in the press and we don't print retractions. That is what was happening. Yeah. They were using the press as a vehicle to get their political ideas. They were heavily partisan and just slamming the other party. And these were efforts to gain political power through uh, changing political opinion. And then things really changed by 1948. So that's when things, I'm sorry, 1848, that's when Joseph Pulitzer and Randolph Hearst started going head to head. I'm sorry, that's the wrong date. In 1883, Joseph Pulitzer started The World and William Hearst in 1895 started The Journal. And that led to the pure competition was no longer a contest of ideas to sway votes, but it was purely about selling papers and print what you need to print to sell papers. That's when it became money first over all other considerations. The previous printing papers, while done for profit, their goals were usually ideologically bent. They were doing it so that they could get their idea out and sell a paper, and their idea was heavily propagandized. By the end of the 19th century, it became about, we're doing this to make money, first and foremost, full stop, Every other consideration is secondary, whether or not we're telling the truth or we're leading the country into a war that it doesn't need to or belong in. All of this to say, to tie this up to today, we have major media companies like Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. We have major news networks. You mentioned Fox News, MSNBC, MSNBC pardon me, CNN, all in the business of trying to get our attention and trying to keep our attention. And all of that, all of them saying they're the arbiters of some form of knowledge or truth. And all of it is still in just the pursuit of profit. None of it's really dedicated to the idea of truth itself. None of them have a set of beliefs. They are a series of opinions without beliefs. Everyone has an idea, but nobody actually believes in anything because all they're doing is competing for our attention in the new attention economy. But through this history, I just want to highlight the problems of how do we get to knowledge? How do we find knowledge? How do we then, once we find it, how do we spread it? How does it not get contained? These are the problems that have plagued humanity. They're the reason myths happened. They're the reasons history happened. They're the reasons philosophy was invented. 
this problem of holding knowledge. How do we figure out what is and isn't true? And once we do, how do we communicate that to other humans so they know that are baked in? And the problems that we have with media and our relationship to media are part and parcel of our problems about knowledge and the epistemological crisis that has been existing for a long time. Really well said. I want to do a couple of things to tie this into Citizen Kane as well, because I think it suffuses the story, but there are a couple of concrete instances that I just want to refer to. One of those being that when Kane buys the Inquirer and decides he's going to run a newspaper, one of the very first things that he does and the first page that he prints, on the front page, he blocks out a section of his Declaration of Principles, my Declaration of Principles. It will be known that I, Charles Foster Kane, am now the editor and the chief of the Inquirer, and he writes two principles that both start with the word I, both insert his personality and his personal agenda into the newspaper for seemingly, in this context, the first time. He's putting himself at the forefront of the paper. It's no longer, this is an objective news source, but this is the paper of Charles Foster Kane. This is where you go to read the opinions and the thought and the leadership of Charles Foster Kane. So I wanted to bring that in, this declaration of principles and this insertion of personality into media, which I think has suffused until this day, certainly. We think about Fox News as the brainchild of Rupert Murdoch. You know, we think about the personalities behind, we think about Facebook as Mark Zuckerberg. And while those uh, those newer forms of media proliferation have been quote unquote democratized, we still see the personality that is the founder. We still see the personality that influences the algorithm and the way that the platform is run. Uh, so I wanted to bring that part in, but I also want to pull a quote from Kane's business partner played by William Holden in this, where he says, one of the greatest curses ever inflicted on mankind is memory. And I thought you said something really interesting about memory in that piece and, and this idea that having to hold on to the, the truth throughout time, especially when we reflect on the media cycle today where there's very little memory, uh, the idea that holding on to the truth can be a curse, I thought was a really potent piece of this story where we're talking both about the influence of media over time, but we're also talking about relationships and we're talking about the man himself. It is a curse to have to remember. That's only true if your existence is purely pain, right? Right. And, but when it comes to, you know, it's very far from the truth will set you free. Right. Yeah. It's very, very far from that. Yeah. It's like, no, no. Remembering is actually the hardest and worst thing ever. I've got one more thing. And that's that I want to reflect a little bit on Xanadu, this palace that Kane has built for himself, because the movie begins and ends with lingering landscape shots and establishing shots of Xanadu. And it's framed very much like the opening of a gothic horror film. It's like we are looking in on the windows of Dracula's castle or Frankenstein's laboratory. It's really very dark and very spooky the way that this movie begins and ends. And there is real precedent for this. William Randolph Hearst built himself a similar palace known as Hearst Castle 
in Los Angeles, which before the building of Highway 1, you had to get to by boat and then drive a car up the side of a mountain where you would run into William Randolph Hearst's zoo, which was just loose and running around the hillside. You would see giraffes and like rhinoceroses and everything. So everything that we're seeing in this newsreel about Xanadu, which was referred to as Kane's Pleasure Dome, and the new Kublai Khan, America's Kublai Khan, the still unfinished Xanadu, all of that is really quite real. Uh, this Hearst Castle was eventually donated to the state of California and became a tourist destination, but there's a lot about Xanadu in Citizen Kane that feels a little bit like Mar-a-Lago. There are vacationers who stay there. But it's also this haunting, haunted hall that Kane and Susan have hold their, themselves up to with their possessions, where when they're trying to have a conversation as husband and wife, they have to shout across the hall toward each other because they are so far away from each other that in this beautiful palace that was supposed to be their paradise, they have found a prison. And Xanadu itself He's referred to as America's Kublai Khan because Shangdu was the name of Kublai Khan, the Mongolian conqueror's palace. His summer palace was Shangdu. Um, and then Samuel Taylor Coleridge, one of the great romantic poets, wrote a poem about Kublai Khan where he used Xanadu as a metaphor for paradise, as this opulent, lavish, idyllic place that was not everything that it seemed. So Xanadu is infused with, I think, a few layers of kind of mythic and symbolic uh, significance as this Dracula's Gothic castle, as this summer palace of a great conqueror, as a prison, as a resort where you entertain the wealthy, famous, and powerful, and eventually as a mausoleum. The very last shots of the film, we just see Xanadu in darkness and a sign that says, keep out, no trespassing. It is nothing if not the tomb of Xanadu's landlord, Charles Foster Kane. At the end of the day, how many times during this episode have we said that all he did was accumulate and amass wealth and property and none of it made him happy? At the end of the day, he lies to rest in this tomb, in this palace with no one. It is full of things, but empty of emotion and love. Uh, I just think it's a really powerful symbol. I think it is another way for us to reflect on the uh, postmodern deconstruction of the American dream. And the fact that it's unfinished, too, is really important to me. The fact that Cain was continuously updating and adding to this and that he never quite finished it. And Cain himself is unfinished. He's unfinished in our minds as the audience because we never really truly got all of the information. We never got all the pieces to the puzzle. Even though we know Rosebud and no one else does, we still don't know him. We still can't possibly understand every piece of the puzzle that led this man to make the decisions that he made, and we cannot ever know the interiority of this man. And that, I think, is a lot to reflect on as we think about all the people in our lives and all of the powerful people in our world. We will never truly know them, and they will always be unfinished. Well said, and until next time, be kind. And don't blame me. I'm